0: right, all right, go ahead and uh, open up to Psalm 5. Psalm 5. This morning, uh, we are going to be looking at Psalm 5, working through Psalm 5, and The title is Total Abandon." I come across a quote from John Wesley. He says this. He says, Give me 100 men. I care not whether they be clergy or laity, who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I will shake this world for Christ. We live in a culture that is plagued by the idea of do more and try harder. We work hard, we want to be seen, or we work hard, you know, to try to merit some type of reward. And the sad part is, is I'm not even talking about the culture outside of the church. I'm mainly talking about the culture inside the church, where we have twisted the gospel, we've distorted the gospel to where it is more about our work and our performance than it is about Jesus. If I just work harder, God will love me more. If I just do more, God will be pleased. If I just, whatever. And because of that, what what we've seen is is Christians have simply just lost sight of what it means to live under grace. We don't understand grace anymore. We We don't live under grace. We're not captured by grace. However, if we surrender to, to Christ and His, His sovereign plan, we will find peace. The peace to live and, and the peace to exist for Him and for His glory. And the result of that is joy. We find joy when we submit to someone else. Now, if that's not the complete antagonist of everything our culture says, then I don't know what is. Because everything we're taught by the world and and unfortunately a lot that we're taught in the church says opposite. We'll find joy when we do the things that make us happy. But that's not how joy works. That's not how the Christian life works. We are to live for God's glory alone. And in living for God's glory Then we find joy. Psalm 5 is actually this wonderful picture of David's posture of living this way. That he's completely resting, he's completely trusting, he's completely living under the sovereign plan of God. And as we saw over the last couple weeks, this psalm does have a superscription that says to the choirmaster for the flutes, a psalm of David. So it was obviously written by David, but it's a psalm that was meant for worship. And, and I mentioned last week that a lot of theologians, a lot of historians believe that Psalm 3 and 4 were originally one unit. They were one psalm, a morning and an evening song, a morning and an evening prayer. Well, a lot of those same theologians kind of believe that Psalm 5 was possibly grouped in that as well. So it goes a morning psalm, an evening psalm, and a morning psalm. So he's crying out to God in in Psalm 3 to, to save him, to deliver him. He's praying and rejoicing in Psalm 4 over Um, the assurance he finds in God's deliverance and in God's plans. And here he is again in Psalm 5 and he's just crying out to God to hear his words so that he would be led in righteousness, so that he would be living a life of total abandon for the Lord. And here's the main idea of where we will be as we work through Psalm 5 today. That those who surrender to Jesus can live in total abandon and be used by him because they trust in his sovereignty. And today, as we work through this, we are going to see what it looks like to live a totally abandoned life in terms of totally abandoned for Christ. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will begin to work through this. I'm definitely breaking the Baptist mold today. There are actually five points, not three. So, um, but they're not super long points, so don't, like, get fearful to think you're never going to make lunch. You're, you're still going to make lunch because we are Baptists, okay? No. But let's pray together and we will begin to um, dive into Psalm 5 together. Lord, what a joy it is to be able to gather with your people and to open your word together. God, when everything in our culture is telling us to to live the opposite side of grace, God, let us remember, let us relearn what grace is. So that we would be free to live for you. Understanding the work of Jesus and how it accomplishes everything that we can't. And let that fuel a life lived on mission to declare the glory of God every moment of every day to every people in all places. So we ask that you would bless the reading of your word today, that for the Christian it will be uplifting. And challenging simultaneously, that we would be revived in our daily Christian walk. But also, God, for those who have never trusted in Jesus for salvation, God, I pray that it be a call to surrender, to find true peace. come, Father, trusting that you have led us here, we come understanding that this is your word, and we come believing that you will speak through your spirit a message, a truth that we all need to hear. And we ask prayerfully, God, that you will allow our hearts to be ready and willing to hear the gracious truths of your word. So that we would be collectively, as a people, ready to live lives in total abandonment for you. For the glory of your name and for the good of us as your people. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. The first thing that we will see um, when looking at a life of total abandonment is that the totally abandoned life calls to God in prayer. Verse 1 and 2 says, Give ears to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. David is passionately praying to his God. And he desperately wants to hear from the Lord. Again, in Psalm 3, we saw David crying out to God for... um, Safety for deliverance, for physical salvation as he is being pursued by his son. And then at Psalm 4, we see David at the end of the day giving thanks to God for being good. And we see David shifting his words to being one of thankfulness and, 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 and grace, graciously accepting God's deliverance. And being assured that God is in control and that regardless of what he would face in life, the Lord would be there to, to comfort him and, and to, to lead him. And here in Psalm 5, now he's crying out to God again. Trusting that God would answer. Because what we see as we move into Psalm 5 is that David is fully trusting in in God's sovereign plan. But also trusting in God's goodness. How often do we hear people talking about God's sovereignty and, and God's goodness. And that they're like in competition with each other. But that's not the case at all. He's actually altogether good because he's altogether lovely and because he's altogether sovereign. And our lives should be directed in such a way that we would be trusting the Lord's leading. He has, in fact, promised in Romans 8 that he is working all things together for good for those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. There, there is no doubt in there that God is not for us. A couple of weeks ago, I. Gave a quote from Jared Wilson, who's actually a a new, fairly new ish writer. And he says that the cross is proof that God is for us, that God loves us. And the word constantly shows us that over and over. He's a God worth loving. He's a God worthy of our love. And our devotion. Why? Why? Because he proves himself time and time and time again. And that's the posture David's taking. That he has experienced the love of the Lord. He has trusted in the grace of God. God has delivered him time and time again. God has been good to him time and time again. He has heard God's response over and over. And here he is crying out once more to the Lord in prayer. And what this does is it shows us as he's fervently praying to the Lord that he is trusting in God. And it gives him hope. He has hope because he's not only praying to God but because he knows that God is there to hear and that God is going to work all things for good. How hopeful are we when we cry out to God and we see him work? He may not work in our timing, he, not may, he may not answer the way we want him to answer, but he is for us, he is good. And in verse 3 he says, O oh Lord in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Watch. Total abandonment for God results in sacrificial living. If you notice here in verse 3, David is rising early. He's calling out to God first thing. Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. David's pursuing the Lord. Even in these major trials these major storms that he's facing currently he is pursuing the Lord he's not distracted by the negative things in his life he's not distracted by the storms and the the temptations and the trials he's still pursuing the Lord oh Lord in the morning you hear my voice in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch how many of us when we are facing just difficulties in life we just don't want to get out of bed Just want to check out. But he's up and he's praying. Now, what I'm not saying is that everybody has to get up early in the morning and pray. That's not what I'm saying. But we should be seeking the face of God. We're not all Puritans, right? You know, I encourage you to read the Puritans because there's so much wonder in their love for the Lord and their theology and their way of life, but... It's easy to read the Puritans and and walk away feeling like dirt, because we're not waking up at three o'clock in the morning and praying for four hours before we work all day and then come home to to pray all night and and sleep for two hours. Um, and and so what I what I don't want you to do is is to get caught in this mode. And that's part of the reason I want to say this is because in the culture of do more, try harder, we think that we have to be like modern day Puritans where we get up and we we pray for three or four hours and then we work hard all day and and we eat and then we read the word until we can't um, hold our eyes open or until the light just simply gives out and then we pray ourselves to sleep and, and we sleep for just a few hours thinking that God will be pleased in that but that's not how the grace of God works. The point is, is that living a life for Christ, living a life in total abandon is a life of sacrifice. Not that we have to, but that we get to. Not that we have to constantly just pour ourselves out, but we get to pour ourselves out. And there's a drastic difference there. And the difference is, is, if I feel like I have to do something, then it becomes burdensome. And if, I feel, and if I am not attaining the goals that I set out to achieve for God, then God's not going to be happy and my life is just going to feel like it's imploding around me. But that's not what it means to understand grace. What it means that God is gracious and, and to live a life of total abandon under the grace of God is understanding that even when I fail, God is still good and he still cares greatly for me because in case you have forgotten which is something i have to remind myself of often my salvation is not dependent on what i do god's pleased god being pleased with me has nothing to do with how i live my life it has everything to do with the work of christ and my surrendering to him Again, God is altogether pleased with us because He's altogether pleased with Jesus. That's what it means to live a total abandoned life. Sacrifice means we're pursuing the Lord even when it's not easy. And that's kind of the point. Not that we imitate David and, you know, I mean, if... Obviously, we should be seeking the Lord in prayer constantly. We said that last week, to pray without ceasing. Everything in our lives should be bathed in prayer. Um, God wants to hear our prayers. But more of the point today is that even when it's difficult, we, si- we surrender to Him. This could be anything in life. Not just prayer. It could be reading the Word. It could be living in evangelism, preparing to share the gospel. Not everybody has a personality where it's easy to walk up and just start sharing the gospel with others. Sometimes it's easy just to lock ourselves in a room and study than it is to live on mission. But Being totally abandoned for the Lord means to be sacrificing for Him. And the flip side of that is this, that living with certainty of God's grace and salvation frees the Christian to pour out his or her life for the glory of God. So by understanding grace, we are actually freed to live more for Him. Again, it's the Weird relationship between understanding that we don't have to, but we get to. We're not. Set apart by God. To be pawns. We're set apart by God to enjoy him. And that we enjoy him by living for him. And that's the beautiful relationship of the gospel. That Christ gives himself for us so that we can live for him, for his glory, by his grace. That's the beauty of Ephesians 2. To know that I'm not in charge of saving myself means that I can actually be saved. Because if I have to save myself, then I have no hope. I can live the most perfect life ever. Just this morning, uh was scrolling through Facebook and I saw this little clip of Mother Teresa standing before this panel crying out for help as she's feeding um, orphans who have no food. And it's a good reminder because a lot of times we look at stuff like that and say that's what it means to live for the Lord. And yes, that is a result of what it means to live for the Lord. But if you're not Mother Teresa and if you're not doing all that she did, that doesn't mean God is not pleased. And it doesn't mean that You failed. The greatest thing that you can do is to trust God over all things. Because as you trust him and as you understand the grace of God. Then you're free to live the life he's called you to live. A life that does glorify him. Because honestly you can work and work and work and work to try to earn the merit and favor of God, but he's not going to be pleased with that. And you know how I know he's not going to be pleased with that? Because Christ even says in, 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 the Ma- in Matthew, in a Sermon on the Mount, that it, there are going to be people who come to me saying, Lord, Lord, but didn't we do all of this in your name? And he's going to say, but I never knew you. He's not pleased with what we do. He's pleased with who his son is and what his son has done on our behalf. That is what frees us to live a life of total abandonment. It starts by calling out to God in prayer. It starts with us seeking Him and pursuing Him above all things. He begins to fuel us and to send us. I love the way he ends that. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Secondly, a totally abandoned life hates sin. One of the key truths of the Christian faith is the holiness of God. That God is altogether holy. He is the example. He is the standard. He is the very definition of what it means to be holy. When we try to determine whether or not something is sinful, we... Use the standard of God. Not the worldly standards or not any other person. We go to God. So when we have the battle internally of of trying to justify a sin or not. What do we go to? Do we go to someone that we know to be godly? Or do we go to God himself? And I think this is where a lot of us fail in a lot of areas of our life. Is instead of trying to put ourselves in comparison To God, we try to put ourselves in comparison with other people. And I'm, I'm telling you this, other people are failing just like you and I are failing. If we want the true standard of holiness, we go to God. That's why in Isaiah 6, we see holy, holy, holy. And in Revelation, we see holy, holy, holy. No other attribute of God is repeated three times in that manner. And that is for a reason. In Romans 3, when Paul says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he's referring to the holiness of God because we cannot live to that standard. And so we must understand the holiness of God, which helps us to understand the greatness and the majesty of God. Verse 4, he says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Because God is holy, he cannot delight in evil. He hates sin. Because sin goes against everything that he is. Not only does he hate it, but he can't look at it. He can't even gaze upon sin. And maybe you're sitting there and like, yeah, well, that's kind of odd. Well, how can God even... It's because of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, For he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That means Christ took our sin, and he gave us his righteousness so God could look at his people. It's this beautiful picture of what Christ has done for his people. And even further proof is when Christ is on the cross. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've told you before, but that, that's a verse that baffled me for a long time. I just didn't understand that. How could, how could God forsake his son? The perfect son who, who was sinless. It's because of 2 Corinthians 5. It's because Jesus took all of the sin of all of His people for all of time and He took it upon Himself and at that moment God turned His face away as He destroyed His Son and in destroying His Son He destroyed all of that sin for all of His people for all of time. And death died. Christ defeated death through taking death Our sin and bearing the wrath of God for us. So when I say that God can't look at sin, Jesus proved that. And he goes on in verses 5 and 6 and he says this. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors or he hates the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Because God is holy sinners cannot stand in his presence. We have no ground to stand upon. God is holy, God is righteous, God is just. And in fact God rejects those who reject him. Because they're plagued with sin. Again, this is why we can't come to Christ. We can't come to Christ To save ourselves, we come to Christ to be saved because we can't cleanse ourselves of our unrighteousness. Only God can do that through Jesus. We're stained with sin. It doesn't matter how much good work we try to use to cover that stain up. It just doesn't go away. Not until it is washed by Jesus. Until it is covered by His work, His And the truth is for every one of us that we will all face judgment based on God's holiness. Based on Him. And how we stand in comparison to Him. And that's why we desperately need Jesus. Because when we take ourselves as Marred by sin as we are, regardless of how much pseudo righteousness we try to cover it with, and we stand before God, He still sees the stain. Unless we've trusted in Christ, and then He sees righteousness. So we can't work our way to God. We must trust in Jesus. God hates sin. And the totally abandoned life of a Christian is one that strives for holiness because of a deep conviction of sin and an awareness of God's saving grace. So here's the question, or a series of questions. Do you hate sin? Does sin break your When we sin, are we grieving that sin? Or do we justify it? Do we just brush it off as not as severe as the sin of another? Sin grieves the heart of God. And a life of someone who is living in total abandonment for Him is going to take the same posture that God would take and we're going to hate sin. So when you are doing things that you know are not meeting God's standard, if you don't feel this presence of the Holy Spirit within you saying, that's wrong then more than likely the Holy Spirit is not in you. Which means you're not a Christian. Which means you need to desperately seek Jesus. So the life of those who are totally abandoned, they call to God in prayer, they hate sin, and thirdly, they hope in the steadfast love of the Lord. Verse 7, but I through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. That word steadfast love in Hebrew is the word chesed. I remember when I was at Bruton Parker, my Old Testament professor would just spend class after class after class talking about that one Hebrew word. And the more I mature in my faith, the more I understand why he did that. Because the steadfast love of the Lord is exactly what Sally Lloyd-Jones uses to make this Jesus Storybook Bible so powerful. That God never stops pursuing us. He never fails. The love of God is unending. There's simply not a point where the love of God diminishes. And that's where David's hope is. That's, that's why in Psalm 5 he's crying out the way he is. Because his hope was in the steadfast love of the Lord. He's, he's crying out to God. He's seeking the face of God. He knows that God hates sin. And so he's, he's calling out the sin of those who are after him. And even the sin in himself. He finds himself in verse 7. He says, but I through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. Not because he is crying out to God, not because he was a good king, not because he did a lot of good things, not because he was even a man after God's own heart, but because of the abundance of the steadfast love of the Lord, he enters his house. It's solely based on the work of God. His trust of the Lord, his surrender to the Lord. His hope in the unwavering love and the relentless grace of God leads him to worship. When's the last time we worship based on simply who God is? Not what God can do, but who He is. You know, we, we see a lot of people claiming to worship God, but they're not really worshiping God. They're simply worshiping what God can do. Instead of simply reflecting on the nature and the character of who God is. You know the most important thing I can do. And this is why I said a few weeks ago. I, I even fight daily, weekly. What it means to live under the grace of God. It's easy in our culture to get caught up in this way of living. to Where we try to make God pleased with us. Instead of just resting in who God is, but David is—he's—he's resting. When's the last time we've done that? When we just simply reflected on the goodness and the greatness of God, and it's just led us to worship? We get so convoluted in the way we think. We forget the goodness of the Lord. The truth is this, that the one who fully surrenders his life to Jesus and he trusts Him completely in his steadfast love will live in total abandonment. So do you see the odd dichotomy of how this all works together? How it's wrong to think that we have to do all of these things so God would be pleased. But yet a life of total abandonment to the Lord is a life that's lived, poured out exhaustively for him. It's just, it all hinges on our understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Because if we try to do all of these things to, so that Jesus would be pleased with us or so that Jesus would save us, then we are failing and we're missing the point. You're not going to find joy in that. But if we understand that Jesus is God's son and that he has given his life as a ransom for you and me to defeat the penalty of sin and death, to take the penalty of sin and death upon himself so that we could be freed, then we get to live for him out of gratitude and out of joy. And we find happiness in that. We worship in that. And it's a really fine line. It's a super fine line that we have to try to gauge because everything in our culture tells us to do one thing, but then the gospel is telling us to believe the opposite. And they're so close. So close. And and there's really kind of a good litmus test to, to judge where we're at. If the Christian walk has left you with no joy, if you are not enjoying worship you don't want to be in worship, if you don't want to be in fellowship with God's people, if you don't want to read your Bible, if you don't want to do mission work, if you don't want to see the gospel of Jesus proclaimed, if it just becomes more of a chore, you're doing it wrong. I can tell you that because I've done it wrong for a long time. It's so easy to misread and misunderstand and just forget grace. And what we see in Psalm 5 is David fully surrendered to the Lord. He knows that he could lose his life, and he's okay with that because he knows that God is bigger, God is greater. He knows that he may never get his throne back and he's okay with that because he trusts in the ruling of God over his own throne. Are we trusting God in the everyday moments of our life? If you want joy in the Christian life, it starts with surrendering to Jesus. And I'm not saying you've got to sign up for this or check these boxes. I'm, I'm just saying just trust in Jesus. You can't do it on your own. You're not going to find joy on your own. It's not like, and for goodness sakes, I don't want you to hear anything of what, what I'm saying this morning. And, and, as, and as this passage is, is being um, brought forth for us, I, I don't want you to under Stand it in such a way that you leave here and you think, man, I've got to do better, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. Because if you do that, then you miss the whole thing. I want you to leave here thinking how great God is. How good Jesus is. You want to know how to live a life of total abandonment? Surrender to Jesus. Everything. Your work, your life, your family. All of it. Just give it to Jesus. You want to find joy? Surrender to Jesus. Verse 80 says, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. The result of hoping in the steadfast love of the Lord is that We willingly submit to God's leading. I'm I'm sure you face these same things, but it it may play itself out differently, but they're probably, uh, they're daily things in our lives where we know that God is calling us to do something and we justify why we can't. Or why we don't want to. We, oh, I, I'm not good with people, or, I, I, don't have enough energy. I didn't sleep good last night, or. I can't, I can't do that because I don't, I don't have the money to be able to do that, or I can't do that because I don't have that gifting. Um, pursuing the Lord living a life of total abandon means completely trusting him and completely resting in him over all things. God can use anyone in any way he so chooses. I read a book this past week um that I really would like to get in all of your hands. It's a super simple book, super simple read. It's called Becoming a Welcoming Church. <laughs> and and in there, he's talking about greeting. And he said that um, the author um, and one of his pastorates was trying to push the need for a greeting team, and he picked one particular person, mainly because it was a really small church and everybody else was doing all these other things, but this one guy, he wasn't doing anything. Um, and he said he was a, um, a fairly new Christian, um, very new. He said, and in fact, most of his... Um, everyday life did not necessarily look like Christ because he was growing in the sanctification he was learning Um, he said typically the majority of their conversations led to cursing um, even the conversations at church Um, and he said but this guy was extremely introverted he he didn't talk to people well and so he made him the the greeter Um, and the guy was like blank no Um, and so he just kind of said all right well it's going to happen one day and the guy was a mechanic and he said one day he saw how this individual started interacting with a lady at the shop explaining you know, what was wrong with her car and the process they could take. And And he said, he just went to him and he kind of laughed and the guy was like, why are you laughing at me? And he was like, because the way you're interacting with this lady. Um, and he basically said, this is why you're going to be the greeter. Um. And so the guy was like, "All right, yeah, whatever." And so he started doing. It and he said, and eventually, that guy became one of the best greeters he's ever had in all of his churches because he became passionate about people. He loved people. He loved. He said, and eventually, he even quit cursing at the guests. Um, but you know it. God can use anyone in any way He chooses if we just surrender ourselves to Him. Um, and, and so often, and I'm telling you this because I'm guilty of it, we, we say many of the things we can't do for the Lord because we don't have that gifting or that capability and we just justify and we, we try to push it off, but God can do it. Um, he can do it. If we're hoping in Him. And that's what we see in verses 7 and 8 is that David is hoping in the steadfast love of the Lord. And as we hope in the steadfast love of the Lord, we will be be driven to live for him. Because we will not be hoping in all these other things. We're not hoping in all the things that are empty and, and void. Fourthly, totally abandoned life condemns unrepentant sin. Look at verses 9 and 10. But there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear the guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. David sees underpinned sin, and he begins to call out that sin, and he's calling for God's justice. One of the difficult... Roles of a healthy church is calling brothers and sisters to repentance, um, because our culture disagrees with us calling each other to repentance. How many times we're ah don't judge lest you be judged, and they misquote scripture and whatever. Um, but this is this is why it's so important to have a healthy understanding of, of biblical church membership, because we need each other desperately. We need to be able to call each other out. And again, the culture is going to disagree, but, but it's actually the most loving and the most gracious thing that we can do if we do it right, if we do it according to Scripture and if we do it from the right place, a, a, a deep understanding and a deep longing for their soul to be resting in Jesus. And the truth is this, is that we greatly need healthy accountability within biblical church membership to help guard our hearts from sin and sin's deception. This is why you can't do church at home. You hear people say, oh, I have church in the deer stand. No, you don't. You enjoy nature. You're not having church. I can I can worship doing x whatever no you can't have church you might have some good time of silence and solitude but you're not having church you can't have church without the church i'm not talking about the building i'm talking about the people we desperately need each other to pray for each other to lift each other up to to walk with each other hand in hand When, when God called Moses to lift his hands in prayer, he couldn't do it. He needed others to stand beside him, to hold him up, even when he was weak and wanting to fall. True love in the church is calling each other out when sin is there. It's love. It's not damnation, it's love. Because it's caring greatly for the soul of our brothers and sisters. It's love because we're trying to help our brothers and sisters not face the wrath of God. (laughs) Lastly, total abandoned life rejoices over the saving grace of God. Look at verse 11, the beginning part. Let all who take refuge in you... Rejoice and let them sing for joy. Trusting in God's sovereignty and living a life of total abandonment leads to joyous worship. David is rejoicing in salvation. He's rejoicing in the grace of God. Because he is seeing the grace of God. He's experienced the love of God. he goes on, he says, And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, you cover him with favors with a shield. The steadfast love of the Lord extends to all who surrender their lives to him for salvation. If you want to know the joy of the Lord, trust Jesus, surrender to Jesus. You're not going to find it any other way. Not lasting joy. Jesus is the only way. And as we trust in Jesus and we begin to understand the greatness of God, our hearts are changed. They're transformed into Gratitude and thankfulness for what God has done and that leads us to worship, leads us to a life lived for the Lord. The hard thing that we have to deal with in our days is that far too many Christians have a very small view of God. We diminish the greatness of God. We ignore the majesty of God. We don't even think much of the holiness of God. But the the reality is, is that a greater understanding and a higher view of God leads us to a place of total abandon. Why? Who wants to live for a God that's not that great? By understanding how majestic God is, we we want to live for him, we want to serve him, because we understand that when he says that all things are under him, or that he is over all things, then that's exactly what he means. We're not serving a a made-up deity that only has this small area of dominion. We're serving the creator of all things. creator of the universe, the one who allows you to even be here right now and breathing. It's the one who loves us enough to send his son. To take sin upon himself. To bear the wrath of the holiness of God. Understanding the greatness of God allows us to live under grace. Knowing that Jesus has done everything necessary for salvation. And when we understand that, we are free to live a life of just radical passion for the Lord and for His glory. We come, we hear in Jeremiah 20 verse 9, the latter part. There's in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary with holding it in and I cannot. That's a life of radical abandonment and I can't hold it in. I have to live for the glory and the greatness of God simply because of who He is. So I'm encouraging you this morning to look to the greatness of God and rest in the grace of Jesus and be fueled for life, a life lived in total abandon to make His name known in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace. We praise You for Your mercy. We ask that we would just be reminded of what grace truly is. That it would be the banner of our life. A life lived for you and for your glory above all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.